Hey, humans out there, I need your help. Humans Now and Then is in the running for a People's Choice Podcast Award under the Society category. If you love Humans Now and Then, please vote at podcastawards.com. That's podcastawards.com. Also, follow Humans Now and Then on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to be one of the first to learn more about the upcoming Season 2. I'll be sharing some exciting announcements soon, and you do not want to miss it. Now, let's dive into Episode 22 of Humans Now and Then. Earlier this year, many students suddenly found themselves learning virtually from home. While e-learning existed long before that, it instantly became the primary method for education delivery across much of the world. In this episode, I speak to Doug Thompson, storyteller, TEDx speaker, and technology strategist director for the education team at Microsoft, about how expanded virtual learning provides great opportunities for better access to education, but also challenges as we navigate e-learning at scale. Uh, you know, the education system, primarily K through 12, but even higher ed in the U.S., we're, we're very much locked in that, okay, everything's in a classroom and the teacher's at the front of it, and this is where learning takes place. And it really wasn't geared for remote for this scale, this time. Doug is a passionate storyteller who believes that everyone has a story, and it's just a matter of unlocking it from the grips of the subconscious mind. He leverages his storytelling skills to share how Microsoft technologies can transform the student experience to empower teachers and students of today to create the world of tomorrow. So, ready to learn more about the virtual learning landscape? Let's discuss. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this is Humans Now and Then. Doug Thompson, thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me, Rebecca. You bet. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about you? Oh, well, I uh, by day, I work for Microsoft. I am on the education sales team. They call me a technology strategist, which is uh, used to be pre-sales engineers back in another decade. But So my job is to explain the technical benefits to business problems, how we solve those. So I've talked to a variety of people. I like to say from janitor to CEO, discussing how technology can be used. I'm also an AI ambassador, uh, which simply means I know a little bit more about AI than the common uh, person. But to go out and sort of evangelize how artificial intelligence, you know, what's the good? What's what's to be worrying about? You know, are we going to turn into a Skynet anytime soon? And then uh, on LinkedIn, I do a lot of uh, mindset, uh, you know, coaching. Uh, storytelling is my my true love, is the ability to give other people the capability of telling their story. Because everybody has a story. It's just sort of locked with inside of them. They don't know how to get it out. Yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. It takes a lot of courage and vulnerability to get your story out into the world. That's true. The The vulnerability part, I like to walk around with a target on my back because I, if I can share my foibles with the, with the world, which there are plenty of them, that uh, <laughs> people can relate and they feel a bit safer coming out and doing things. We make things a lot worse for ourselves. I mean, we tend to think, well, you know, nobody would want to hear my story or nobody would think that's important or you know, nobody wants to hear my point of view. And if you express it from the heart, as opposed to simply pontificating, there's a, there is a difference between the two, that the ones where you share from your heart and you are who you say you are just are warmly accepted. And, and it's just getting over that, that fear. Yeah, it's good that you open that door for people to make them feel like, hey, it's okay. And and we're not perfect. I and mean, maybe they, they go back to the we're not perfect part. So I got to share this with the listeners because it's kind of funny. So Doug and I had some technical problems. I'll, I'll have to correct that. Doug didn't have any technical problems. I had some technical problems when we got started. 
And I'll be vulnerable, vulnerable enough right now to share that that was my own fault, but we got it figured out. But this is the, these are the kind of things that help us have permission out in the world to say, hey, we may not be perfect, but we have a story to share and that has value to the world. Oh yeah, the, the perfection is is a is a fallacy that you you never get there. So and it prevents so many people from from even starting. And you know, as you as you do a lot of things, it's all about learning along the way and making adjustments. You know, the Wright brothers they didn't fly the first time; they had lots of crashes and stuff before they actually took off. So imagine if they waited for it to be perfect. You know, and a lot of things you don't know. How, you know, until you test it, you have no idea what it is. Absolutely. That's true. And I think a lot of that's true, too, when you think about uh, technology and the advancement of technology. A lot of the advancement that we've had in technology is because of errors and mistakes and the things that we've learned from that. Know, know to kind of change our course and think differently about the types of technologies that we need to solve the major problems in the world. And what's really interesting when you think about um, yeah, e-learning technologies in particular, in today's world, of course, with the pandemic, with many people being educated from home for some period of time, whether it be continuing on through the fall semester and potentially into next year in 2021, we would not have had this ability 15, 20 years ago. And a lot of it's just because of the evolution of that uh, e-learning technology. Can you tell us a little bit about the background of that evolution of the technology that's gotten us to this place today? Sure. I mean, it's, it's, I've been so busy trying to uh, accelerate the ability to do things remotely. Uh, you know, the education system, primarily K through 12, but even higher ed in the U.S., we were very much locked in that, okay, everything's in a classroom and the teacher's at the front of it, and this is where learning takes place. And it really wasn't geared for remote for this scale, this time, um, you know, which which had some other problems, which we can talk about later. It excluded a lot of people. For example, you know, maybe I had a, a learning disability or something, which the classroom environment, you know, it's, it's a one speed. Uh, which really wasn't helpful. Or if I was homesick, now everybody's homesick, so we have to do it remotely. Uh, you know, I, I mean, that's one of the things that we've learned here. Uh, you know, again, at Microsoft, we have a product called Teams that is really what we use to enable remote learning. There's Zoom, there's, there's other products as well. But, you know, we have been using that as, as a collaboration tool inside the classroom. But up until this whole everybody has to go home, it had been sort of lightly used. But it was sort of bottled up because of the old legacy mindset thinking of this is the only way that it can happen or it's too much work. We have to wait till it gets to be perfect before we can release it and go on. So this this current situation we're in is, is sort of remove that artificial barrier to allow it, you know, or that in that case, the vulnerability. Say, hey, look, we have to do it. We have to make this work. And yes, there's going to be some bumps and bruises along the way. We're going to make some errors. We're going to make it as safe as we can, and we'll do it in a, in a justified manner because we, you know, we have kids' privacy and security at risk, but we we have to do it. We can't let that old mindset thinking uh, stop us. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that's one of the things that you mentioned, um, teachers having to adjust their style in order to accommodate an e-learning environment. It is much different than an in-person environment. We've experienced that, too, with my own kids. So I've got four kids, as many of the listeners might know. Two of my kids are younger, so I've got an 11-year-old and 13-year-old. In their school district, went from a five-day learning week to a three-day learning week simply because the load on the teachers to create those e-learning plans effectively and get them out in the world and then support the children remotely, it's a heavy load. It's a lot for the teachers to take on. It's a big shift in that environment, but also the type of learning that's being administered to the children. 
So what kind of things do we learn from that in relation to this experience now when we think about expanding e-learning opportunities in the future? Yeah, I mean, the, the e-learning piece of it, they've been going online with what they call learning management systems or LMSs, where you're sort of centralizing where the assignments go, where you turn it in, sort of a, a chat and all that, if that means sort of a small scale version of that. But, you know, really, if you look at the, the popularity of Zoom and then, you know, our Slack and, and, you know, if you look at Slack and Teams on the on the business end of it, that was sort of the way that we were about, we started about a year or so ago, we started doing this from a, a uh, workplace environment. And now we've sort of scaled that back. How do we take the learnings we had from a professional environment and put that back into the classroom? You know, the biggest challenge that you have is not necessarily the technology per se, but how do the teachers change their pedagogy to fit the new tools that are there? Because you can do things that are in person. You can, if somebody's being, you know, for example, if somebody's being a little obnoxious, which would be most teenage boys, you can go stand by them and that sort of quietens them down a bit. It's sort of hard to stand by them in a digital world like that to do that. So again, this is all about making adjustments to the new world. And I, you know, I find that a lot of the, this is a generalization, but a lot of the, the younger teachers, the classroom teachers are more um, acceptable of doing this rather than somebody that's been in the classroom a long time. Cause we all, we were talking about earlier, we all get in a routine and we all get in a habit. And, and this is what we do. And, and we have to be able to willing to embrace new things. And, and there are, again, there are some longer experienced teachers which embrace it fully and are really good at it. I completely agree with that. But I think it's also created a, a different types of communications over you know, technology like Zoom or Teams. Um, so my daughter, uh, she has her class that meets twice a week over Zoom. At first, it was very chaotic because all the kids, of course, wanted to show their houses, their rooms, and they were really excited because it was a big novelty involved. Now they're like, oh, i got to connect and we got to get on this meeting. Uh, but what's really kind of cool, though, is also it's normalized, uh, I guess, our normal human life at home, right? So in the past, we were always very worried if we were in a, like a meeting, like a business meeting, and we had to take that call from home or that Zoom meeting from home. And there's things going on in the background or our kids are talking or we forget to click mute or whatever it might be. And it seems like we're building this environment where people are becoming more, more forgiving of those things that just happen in our day-to-day -day lives because they see it every day. Oh, I 100% agree. I, I, it goes back to that video a couple of years ago with this. It was a CNN reporter, somebody, I forget who it was. And he's doing a report from home and the kid comes in from the background and his wife comes in and the other kid comes in a stroller. Is like, You know, that was a big, what's going on, right? That, made, that was a big, huge hit, but that's normal. The other day I was on a meeting and, and my wife is a nanny for our granddaughter and she had to go do something real quick. And I was about to start a meeting. So my granddaughter's sitting on my lap while I'm having a meeting and everybody was you know, acceptable of it. Uh, she wasn't, you know, disruptive and stuff. So, I mean, it is, it's human, right? It's life. And it's, it's not a work life and it's not a work life and a, and a personal life. It is just called life. A lot of this remote learning and everybody having to go to videos done is I think it's actually expanded my network and brought closer, you know, closer connections to that rather than, again, routine. Here's the people I have in the office. Here's the people I have in the neighborhood. Here's the people at the restaurant I go to. It's forced you to do something differently. And I've seen more people use cameras now. I mean, we had the technology for a long time, but when we get in meetings, people would just dial in on the phone. You you had no interaction. But now I've seen more people use cameras and stuff than it's quadrupled. You know, I'd say now 80 to 90% of the people have the camera on during a meeting where before it may have been 15 to 20. 
Yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. And I think that aspect is is good. I think it's really opened up again this like you mentioned the integration of life and work. It really is um kind of contiguous. It's not two broken things. We've kind of broken down those barriers, which I think in a lot of ways is good because it makes us all I guess a little bit more human to one another. Uh builds empathy and maybe some, to some respect better connection. But again, going back to that education point, what's really interesting, too, when you think about the opportunities that e-learning could provide and opening up education opportunities for people that may not have it today, whether that be people in remote areas of the world that don't have access to education and other, and other means, or it's just additional learning opportunities, digital learning opportunities for people that have various disabilities. So from an accessibility to education perspective, uh, what, what do you think this might open up for us in the future? Yeah, I think it gets back down to managing the exceptions better. They are, you know, in a classroom, again, you have more control. You have a set pace and everybody, you know, is there at a fixed time to go on and do things. And, and the support system you had for that, if a student need a little bit more assistant in math or, you know, need some, some tutoring on this or that, you had those support systems in place and they were just well known. Again, we're sort of trying to figure this out as we go along. You know, the the, the great thing I think about this new learning model is that lets kids sort of go at their own speed to a certain extent. If, if a kid can do their work in an hour and a half, then they have the rest of the day to do something else. They've still achieved the goal of learning what they had to do. Now, uh, the, the teachers become more of a uh, curator of the lessons that's going to go on, and then the parents help become the facilitator for this. So again, you know, uh, the teacher now having to learn to, how do I help the parents facilitate this learning at home is also another level. So I, I think if this continues by, you know, by next year and stuff, I, I think we'll be a lot better at it, but it's always going to be an evolution. Okay. What, how can we improve technology? I'll use ours, for example. I mean, we learned a lot of things from the classroom where there were some deficits in what our, our product set would bring that the engineering team worked overtime. They would scale things that would normally take six months to come out down to, down to a few weeks to come out. So, you know, it, it's helped us be better and more nimble at adding things that the customers need. You know, we did research where a, a four by four conversation, you know, four people on screen at the same time was was the optimal for collaboration amongst adults. But if you think about if you're in a classroom, and this was an example of some university of where it was, they were teaching deaf students and the teacher was using sign language and, you know, you would need to see all the students like you would in a classroom to see if they're getting what the sign language is coming across. Different things like that that we learn, and then we have to sort of adapt and help advance the product to enable the teachers to keep going and moving forward. I, I think it's a great thing. It removed a lot of artificial barriers of that old mindset thinking that teaching can only happen in the classroom. Yeah, yeah, we know. It's easy to kick the can down the road when there's no urgent pressure on you. But when they flip the switch at spring break and now you're doing it from home, you know, we, we kick that can to the side in a hurry. Yeah. I think there's another angle to look at, too, when you think about access to education and various levels of disability. So I'd say I had two kids out of two of my four had an IEP. So both of them needed, a, you know, support in their learning journey. And a lot of that support they received in person. And there are a certain amount of subset of, say, there's a subset of kids that do need kind of in-person learning support. Right now, a lot of that support has been transferred to the parents to some extent. But going forward, how do you think about accommodating uh, kids that need that in-person, uh, maybe redirection, in-person support in an e-learning environment? Uh, well, I think it puts it more front and center because, again, you have to think about that ahead of time. How are we going to support 
uh, like a non-native English speaker or somebody that is deaf and you need to have translations or, you know, or you're communicating with somebody in, in Egypt or someplace that doesn't speak English and, and take about dyslexia and, and things like that. You know, how do you, how do you cross that barrier? So technology enables to do that. And I know in, in Microsoft, we we take that very seriously. We started a, a couple of years ago, we, we have in, incorporated in our products, we call it learning tools. And what it does, immersive reader, we, is the real name of it is it enables you to sort of if you've got dyslexia you can spread out the words you can highlight different things so so it really brings things into into the forefront where we think about that ahead of time how can we support this rather than trying to add it on later uh, so I, I think it does open that world for a, a lot of people to get access that they didn't have or it was just very difficult and the onus was on them before so we just put it in there you know for our products if you look at our office products and and even in teams we have translator we have the ability to do those things what are some of the other things that make you optimistic about these opportunities that we're we're seeing right now in relation to the, those expanded opportunities in education? Well, you know, you asked you, you asked before we started. You're going to ask me something about what I'm hopeful about the future, and one of the things I'm worried about on this. And this is sort of a nexus of I can go either way. You know, on the hopeful part of it is if we go back to some place where you have the in-person learning, you have that. There are carve-outs for those that do better remotely and can do things sort of on, you talk about individualized learning, you know, how can we support them so they're not in a classroom, which is going at a slower pace than what they're better for? Because a lot of times you get that ADHD because they're bored, because they know all this stuff and, you know, they're not getting challenged. So they just sort of act out. And how do you support both models? And that's, you know, that's, that's interesting, but, you know, we need to do that. My fear is we go back to normal or what, excuse me, what was normal. And now we're sort of locked back into the same thing. We, we've, we've lost all the advantages that we gained from this exercise because now we, as, as humans, we tend to go back to what makes us comfortable. And I don't know if we've had the long enough time of, of discomfort to accept that we're never going to go back to, hey, this is the warm blanket. I, I honestly don't think we'll ever get back there. But those people, that that's what they need to support. It, you know, how do we accommodate them? How do we help them? And then the students, you say, that need that in-person type thing. How do we accommodate them and yet give the freedom to those that don't necessarily need that? And this, you get the higher ed, it's even different, you know. So look at the cost of higher ed. So why do I need to sit in a classroom of 300 when I can do a Zoom thing or a Teams thing to go, you know, do it remotely and not have to pay as much? I, I don't know what that's going to shake out. But, you know, I... I think the higher ed thing is even a bigger thing than the K through 12 to, to figure out. Yeah, I'd really like to think about that expanded opportunity for higher education for a lot of people that can't access it simply because of cost or other other reasons. So I think that's a great opportunity for the future. I have a son at home who is e-learning. He is a student at Indiana University studying geology. So at first, he was not a big fan of e-learning, was frustrated because he's a science guy. He likes to get in the lab. He likes to be you know, hands-on learning stuff. And so what he's done instead now is he's gone out in some of the adventures. He goes out into the world and looks for rocks. And, and I probably minimize, the, he'd probably be mad for me to say he's looking for rocks because he's doing more than that. But he's going out in the world and finding things and to enhance his own learning. He's doing phenomenally well in an e-learning environment. But what's really interesting is to think about someday them getting back to campus and how this disrupts the college experience to some extent too, especially socially. You know, the social dynamics of a college environment are going to be disrupted, have been disrupted, and nobody's going to be probably going to football games this fall. Maybe, maybe they won't be football games. We don't know yet. Yeah, um, you know, 
again, to your point about the the college experience has fundamentally changed now from from what we had. I mean, my my granddaughter and my oldest daughter were talking about that the other day, and you know, it, it's a difference. And and I've already been having some discussion with some of my customers about, hey, wh- what are you going to do to sort of get make this virtual experience or the remote experience? changed where you have sort of this community, right? How do you get all this freshman student stuff to get in something to do this as a community exercise, which is a lot of what college was about. Um, so yeah, that's the, that work was in process. Now it's accelerated. But there was already Jane McGonigal. I saw she did something at South by Southwest EDU a couple of years or a few years ago that she's talking about sort of the micro credentialization of it and how you could do some different things. So even as you were going through classes, why do I need to have this one track that I'm on is say, uh, say I'm an engineering student or something. Well, what other things, you know, say, say I started in business. Well, what things can I pull from the business track that would do this where, you know, and you're sort of piecing it together of things that are valuable to help you achieve what, what you want to do. And then you, in K through 12, you have sort of these badging where you, you get a badge for doing X, Y, or Z. So it's like a micro credentialization where, Hey, I've got, I, I've mastered this X, Y, Z skill. And you have it, and it's validated. They talked about using blockchain so it couldn't be forged. But it's a way that I can go when I'm interviewing for a job. Yeah, I've got this experience. Look at all these different credentials that I have. You know, it, the high school degree or the college degree now changes to a certification in a more of a specialized field or something like that. So I think that's an opportunity. Again, I don't. I, nothing here is a total replacement for what we have in place. Again, there's certain people and certain things that you sort of need that in-person experience to go do things. But, you know, don't don't make it an either or. It's an and. It helps expand the accessibility to education to people that couldn't afford it or couldn't make the commitment to it. Maybe they're working and they need to do this at night. So it greatly expands the benefit to humanity because we can all sort of expand our skills and not necessarily have to take this. Why, why do I need, you know, philosophy if I'm doing a, you know, an engineering type thing? So, I mean, how do, how do we make that better? Yeah, there's so much research too to to speak to the benefits of education to the community, to the health of the community, and the well-being and the the success of a community financially. There's statistics around you know reduction in crime, so um, I'll try to find those links and put those out on the episode notes too for folks to be able to look at that because I think it's such an important issue. I have a lot of passion around the issue of education simply because, like I mentioned, two of my two of my four struggled uh, with education. They're they're bright kids. Um, they just didn't really fit into, I guess, the typical learning environment, especially then. And there's my older kids. And so things have evolved even since then. And so I think it's really interesting to think about this in, in respect to the integration of technology and in-person experiences in education and the ability to customize education for students maybe better than we could in the past. Yeah, I, you know, I've heard the end of it, personalized learning and stuff. That's been a term that's been floated around for years now. And this is an opportunity, you know, these 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 events that happen come along, and I firmly believe they happen along for a reason. Um, not to get theological and stuff about it, but, you know, we're, we're putting these challenges to it says, hey, look, you need to make a change. And we know the only way you're going to make a change is, is to force you to do it. So let's change the model. And then that sort of changes the thinking. And then you're not bound by that any longer if you if you stay out of it. But yeah, the more educated we are, the more access we have to education, the better we are as a society. We make better decisions when we have that. But again, getting more people access to this 
is 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 key and i think that's that's one of the things that makes me more optimistic about the future is we've sort of you know it's broken open the doors of the library if you think about back when when i was in school you know you had to go to the library or a library and look at an encyclopedia and you know you didn't have these answers right at the top of your finger so learning was fundamentally different if i would have had a search engine to go out and be able to just look for it then I can get more, okay, what can I do with this knowledge, right? I can do take more action rather than simply doing reference and writing footnotes. <laughs> for I just had a flashback to card catalogs and microfiche. Yes, yes. And I can go back even far enough to go back to to programming cards for COBOL and, and doing some of that stuff. So go way back. Absolutely. I tell you what, there was a point in time though where COBOL programmers were um, highly sought after because all of those COBOL systems were being transformed and, you know... <laughs> and migrated but uh but that time is probably past now <laughs> maybe not entirely actually the state of new jersey i saw where they came back with this paycheck protection program that came up is their system had been out of it still ran COBOL, so they were trying to find COBOL programmers to help it, you know get the load so this gets back to the well it's always worked there's no urgent need to move off of it there's no comfort level this is that type of disruptive event that forces you Hey, look, we need to do it. We've been talking about it forever. Now, now this is causing real problems. And, and this happens with technology a lot. Well, it works. Eh, you know, we, we got time to do that later, as opposed to the way things are offering now where is, as a service where you get these incremental improvements all the time and, and you don't have to worry about these big project-based upgrades, which are very disruptive to everything. Now it's just, we're all used to it. I mean, I, I open up my phone and, okay, all these apps updated over now. Oh, I got a new feature. You know, and it's, it's, you know, okay, we adapt to it. But the mindset back of a lot of, of IT people were that, well, no, it's just too disruptive. People can't handle that change. And, you know, that, that's, that was locked back in when, you know, back in the day when you didn't have these big feature changes, but every three years, I mean, it was sort of like when, when they were released. So I'm hopeful that, that again, this is one of those things that breaks that chain that was holding us back to this old model. And we, we here's the new model. Here's the new normal. Where do we go from here? Yeah, absolutely. And what's really interesting, which I'm thinking about more and more, is we've got more people that are exposed to these e-learning technologies, more people that are directly impacted by it. So not just people who um, use it occasionally, maybe on a snow day. You have a lot of parents who now have a direct contact with those technologies, understand the impact of learning with their kids, help their kids, not only with the technologies, but also with their homework. And so helping kind of fill a gap that teachers can't fill simply because they're remote right now. And I want to give a lot of credit and a call out to every teacher in America, in the world right now that is doing e-learning. I've had to transfer their learning plans online and support kids remotely. I highly appreciate all of you. I appreciate the work that my kids' teachers have done. And I, I want to have that call out to them because I think it's really important. They deserve tremendous amount of credit for the hard work they've had to put in in changing their teaching style, changing the learning plans. Wow. Yeah, I mean, this is a group of people that I, I've always appreciated because they always work really hard. I mean, you know, they talk about nine months. No, they work a long time. I mean, it's 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 a job to get in front. If I, I, I have my grandkids come over and like a weekend of, of, of a adolescent is enough for me, much less trying to face that five days a week with a whole room full of them. So I have an appreciation for that. But I, you know, I think everybody, I, I can commend everybody that's been in the, the IT support, the, the, the faculty, the staff, the teachers, everybody just sort of rose to this challenge. Say, hey, we have to fix this and we have to do it. 
And so, I mean, they, they're on the front line, just been making these changes, which is phenomenal. And I want to, you know, give the, like I said, they all deserve credit for doing what they're doing. I'm just so appreciative of what's going on. Yeah. And maybe those tech folks are the unsung, unsung heroes. Cause we hear a lot about um, a lot of folks out there that have been um, kind of heroes in this environment. There's a lot of technology folks out there that have been working really long, hard hours to get platforms up uh, to be able to handle the bandwidth of all of these users needing to be able to continue their work, continue business operations, continue educating people, continue medical care, remote medical care. And so um, if if anybody out there has forgotten about uh, these amazing people who in technology that are keeping these platforms up and running so all of us can stay connected, uh, let's have a shout out for them too. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I've, I've been, I talk to those people every day and it's just like, I'm amazed and I'm like, how can I help you? You guys, you know, everybody out there is just doing a tremendous amount of work, but you, but you mentioned sort of like the, the medical and the things that the new video check-in and stuff on that one. I hope that stays. I think that's a great thing. It should reduce the cost of some care. It should free up the doctors again, to do the things that are more important to, you know, see the people that are need more urgent things you know, when you can sort of diagnose things from video. And I think it's an opportunity to, to sort of, okay, let's keep this. And that's my fear is that we are humans and we go back to that cave and this is what was comfortable. And I really hope that doesn't happen. Uh, I hope we get, you know, we, we're past that bridge now and I hope we, okay, this is not so bad. I've sort of adapted to everything changing at the moment. How can we go on from here? And this is sort of a new, new level. Yeah, absolutely. And now we have all of these people that may have been exposed to a deeper level to the benefits and the challenges in relation to remote learning. Let's say some of these people have some level of passion for making a change or making things better or have ideas to be able to put out in the world in relation to, you know, how do we learn from this moment? How do we expand those capabilities to help support learning for people who need learning, whether it be kids, whether it be college students, whether it be adults, whoever it might be? Um, What advice would you give to them for them to get involved in providing their kind of feedback, their thoughts and putting those out in the world? Yeah, I think it's it's a great time for everybody that's been ob- uh, an observer or, or touched it to, hey, this this was missing. This would make this better to go forward. And, and it's more about improving the product rather than this won't work. You, know, you get back into the more, how can we make it better mindset than, well, this just won't work and we can't do this anymore. Or, you know, we, <laughs> we have an audio problem. We have to just quit. We can't, we can't do it to understand that technology will break. And or will not be optimized when you first start at it. But but okay, let's tweak it. How can we adjust it to make it work? Or maybe we get to the point where this particular technology doesn't do it, but there's this other technology that's new that does, although it's got these other traits. So it's it's all about sort of trade-offs of what you want to do, but it's not about going backwards. It just whatever it is, we need this, we like it. Here's some of the things we'd like to change. Here's sort of the priority of the things that need to change. And, you know, the, the schools and all need to be talking to the parents. How was what worked? What didn't work? You know, how can we do some things better? What concerns do you have? Um, you know, those are their stakeholders just as much as the students are and the teachers are. So how do we then um, take all that feedback, which we didn't get before? You, know, you had a parent teacher conference and unfortunately, a lot of parents uh, didn't get to go or couldn't go. And now we're forced to sort of be engaged with that with the, with the school that they weren't before. So how do you how do you do that, right? So um, yeah, I think I, it's be constructive, be thoughtful. How do we make it better and move this forward? 
Right. And I love that thought about technology really being there to enhance the experience that we have, the le- whether it be the learning experience or the work experience or, or even just having good conversations. Is technology is there to enhance that experience rather than replace it. And I think that opens up potentially those opportunities, like you said, to think creatively around how maybe we could integrate different types of technologies together to solve problems. Um, and also make sure that we're not over-relying on the technology and really thinking around what are those things that um, need to happen potentially outside of technology, but that allow us to enhance it with um, those technologies that exist or may exist in the future. Yeah, I think as part of any technology adoption, you always have to have sort of that backup plan. What happens if the electricity is out? Because it all works on electricity and your battery only lasts so long. So what is the analog, if you will? What's the analog method to continue this on until we can get the technology back online? Um, you know, because that is a real risk. So it's it's like anything else. You you plan for there to be a failure, what to happen in case, but you don't plan to fail. You're saying, okay, here is our backup plan. If XYZ doesn't work, you know, then here's ABC that we're going to do. And it may not be the exact experience. You may have to sort of run some things out of order to to get back to where it comes on, but always have that sort of Here's the analog plan should the electricity go out because, you know, well, we just never know. That's right. So if, if you're in IT to any extent, you might be familiar with the disaster recovery plans that you must have. And if you don't, then I, yeah, I don't know how you sleep at night. <laughs> the bad thing about that is a lot of people don't test the recovery plans. Oh, yeah, this plan looks good. And they never test it and find out there's a critical failure in it. So not only have the plans, test them on occasion. Yeah. Well, let's dust that off from five years ago and see how it still works. Yes. Yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit more. You talked a lot about, you know, things that, that can make us optimistic about different types of technology, especially learning, op- you know, learning technology to open up those possibilities for folks to be able to access education more broadly, maybe than they can today. What are the things that make you concerned about the future? Oh, well, one, reliability of the system. I and mean, we've sort of pushed the system to its limit right now. So getting capacity to do that, um, you know, making sure that the infrastructure is there to support that. And that requires a lot. There's a lot of com- commercial people or, you know, companies that have to do that. There's a lot of government that has to get in and, and help support that. So you know, just the fundamental supporting it. You made a comment about how do we incorporate technology? My view is technology should fade into the background. It should just simply be there when, and it's the experience we need to do. We don't think about turning on and here's a video call. We just go into the computer. I've got a meeting with you and we're going to have this video game. We go on. So we don't think about it. So getting that reliability and, and the capacity there is, is critical. Um, Somi Aaron, she's a millennial, but she thinks very much about artificial intelligence and some other things. She, she had a post on LinkedIn today, which I was reading. And it's about concerns about artificial intelligence and all and this sort of crisis we've had is sort of accelerated it on some things and broken it on others. But the, the things that happen under a crisis as citizens, we don't pay attention to that you get government in place that or big company, you know, there could be a bunch of different things. This this turns into the Skynet scenario where all these people are sort of plotting in the background to do things that are more selfish to sustain their their model. And that's scary. If you've got that, and then you've got a lot of legislators and people that are making the laws that that don't understand technology or may have a different mindset than that. So these are all things we need to be, as a citizen, we need to be aware of what this technology can do. And from a privacy perspective, 
how is my privacy being protected? How does, you know, in an analog world, if you're face to face, you have a little bit more privacy than you do in an online world where wherever you go, every weapon, I mean, all that stuff's out there and you get to be, well, I'm not doing anything that I shouldn't be doing. It doesn't matter. You know, it, it's the fact that your privacy is being taken from you and you can't get it back. And now if you start doing artificial intelligence, which right now is being programmed and machine learning is being programmed by humans, there's flaws in it. There's bias in it. You know, I use an example for a bias you know, from that is there was a, a study they were trying to identify pictures and they're trying to identify, okay, can we di- differentiate a dog from a wolf? And, you know, they were training the algorithm and they're putting thousands and millions of pictures and stuff in on that. And the accuracy in the training model got over, is over 90%. But they released it out to a broader out of the training and it was really bad. Uh, it was identifying dogs as wolves. Quite, and what happened was, is as opposed to training on the actual shape of the animal, the algorithm was training, you know, if you think about what's, when you think of a picture of a wolf, what comes to your mind? What's the background behind the wolf when it comes to mind? Forest. Forest or snow, maybe. You know, you see a lot of them with snow. It was actually training on the snow in the background. So if you had a dog and there was snow in the background, it called it a wolf. But uh-huh. That's a built-in bias that you don't even think about, right? I mean, and that's, that's an harmless bias per se, you know, the snow in the background. So how are we training these things? And we're all humans. And, and you know, I... We as a company, we actually go sort of an ethical review for our AI solutions to say, hey, look, what are you, what are you doing with this thing? Is, is it something that just because you can do it, and this is the fundamental question, just because you can do something with technology or artificial intelligence, thing like that, should you? And, and my, my fear is there's not enough light being shined on it. And, and a lot of people don't understand it. You know, they, they, their view of it comes either from, from uh, uh, Wally, <laughs> the movie Wally, or Terminator, right, or, or or Star Trek, right? You know where you've got this nice fluffy world and stuff on it. So it it's not necessarily that it's bad, but like anything else, if the light's not shined on it, some some dark things can happen, and that's my biggest concern. So I, everybody, learn as much as you can about it. Ask questions about it. Ask the people that are making the decisions for you about it. Just because you can do it. Should we do it? Yeah, I'm so very glad you brought that up. It is one of the catalysts for me to even start this podcast is making sure we're putting the right critical analysis on AI in particular so that we're making sure that it's driving the right decisions because the reality is, is where the future is headed is that more and more decisions will be made on our behalf by AI and AI-powered analytics and solutions. Um, and if we don't understand them, or if we don't take our part to help shape that future, um, it's difficult to say where that's going to take us. And so, um, yeah, I, I challenge everyone to learn more about AI to any extent. You don't have to be an expert in technology. Um, you don't have to even go that path if that's not the the path you'd like to take. But understanding it better is important for all of us. And helping um, put the word out there about different things that you'd like to see in the future is is critical. So very important point. Yeah, and you're not going to put it back in the bottle. You're not going to stop it. It's out there. It's it's going to happen. Yeah, that's right. Um, so let's make a good, you know let's let's be smart about it. Yeah, absolutely. So Doug Thompson, thank you so much for a fantastic conversation. Thank you for having me. I had a really great time. Fantastic.
the thing about storytellers. They're also explorers. By nature, they dive into important topics to understand the complexity, determine the impact, and explore potential solutions. As Doug explores the opportunities and challenges of virtual learning, he thinks deeply about its impact to teachers, parents, and primarily students, while taking into account the wide array of learning styles and abilities that must be accommodated through an intricate coordination of human support and technological solutions. What's interesting about the story of virtual learning is that it's far from over. This story will continue to evolve, taking the arcs from its initial chapters, exploring what we have all learned through its scale, and continuing to improve our ability to educate more people and more effectively. Do you have ideas on how this story can evolve? Now is a great time to be a part of the conversation to explore how to expand access to education and improve our ability to make education more accessible to all. Education is a key pillar of a successful society, and improving access to quality education will help us all build a better future. So, go on. Go help shape the future. To learn more about Doug Thompson, find him on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash in slash the Doug Thompson. You can also email him at thedougthompson at outlook.com. I am Rebecca Scott, and this has been Humans Now and Then, hosted and produced by Rebecca Scott. Music by Ryan Sullivan, Rebecca Scott, and Victoria Scott. Credits and resources from this episode can be found in the episode notes at humansnowandthen.com. Thank you for listening.